production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. John Marsden is one of Australia's most well-renowned authors. John's intelligence has enlarged our imagination on big subjects at the heart of who we are, schooling, social class and the deepest meaning of life. John says, don't treat people as you think they are. Treat them as you think they are capable of becoming. This conversation is an exploration of many things. The losses we're born with and the losses we grow into and on why we turn these things into stories. When children with mental health problems are presented to them, if they work with the parents and not the child, 70 or 80% of the children, their symptoms disappear. There is a tremendously strong relationship between parents' emotional difficulties and the emotional difficulties that their children have. And in fact, if the parents had that sort of um, support and counselling and so on, most children would be pretty right within a pretty short time. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. John Marsden is the author of many of Australia's most well-known books, including Tomorrow When the War Began, So Much to Tell You, and his newest book, Take Risks, Raising Kids Who Love the Adventure of Life. In its essence, this conversation is an excavation of John's life. It's as much about hardship and survival as it is about creativity and following your dream. My hope is that this conversation will inspire you to think more deeply about how even with the smallest action, we can make a positive impact on the world we inhabit. John Marsden, you have had a very colourful life and a particularly colourful childhood. Let's start at the beginning. Tell us, how were the younger years for you? It was a pretty drab life in some ways in that we lived in a very monocultural society and I lived in country towns where there wasn't a lot for kids to do that was provided for our entertainment. We had to make our own entertainment, but I was pretty good at doing that, I guess. So I roamed quite freely during the daytime. School, I had a couple of good teachers in primary school, said it was great. I had a couple of bad teachers, said it was awful. And uh, generally adults weren't, the adults in my life weren't terribly easy or sympathetic to get along with. Um, And secondary school was really a survival game. I was kind of just uh, doing what I could to survive. It was a tough school. And it wasn't until year 11 that I started to get a few things together and get a bit more uh, positive, I suppose, in my involvement with the school and my life. (laughs) At the age of 10, your family moved to Sydney and you and your brother, Andrew went to this a very conservative school and this this proved to be quite testing for you. <laughs> yeah, testing's a nice euphemism. It was um, and challenging would be another one. <laughs> interesting is a good word too. People say, oh, you've had a very interesting life. And that often means pretty tough. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a military school and there's only one of those in Australia. So it was... Uh, an unusual environment, although I didn't really, that didn't really strike me as being unusual. I didn't know how schools operated, but um, it was very strict and very much dominated by the prefects, the year 12s, who were given tremendous power. And so they were free to use corporal punishment and they certainly used it freely and uh, savagely in many cases. And so it was quite an ordeal until you got to the level of prefect yourself and then What often happened, of course, is that people repeated the behaviours that had been inflicted on them when they were young, and so there wasn't much um, evidence of people changing those patterns. They tended to just stay in the groove, and so, uh, yeah, it was a 
a trial of strength in many ways. Why did they give those students who are still young themselves, adolescents, the power to be able to treat other children like that? It was just the culture of the times, I think, the society that we lived in, and it was thought to be good for them, that they would learn leadership skills and it would be good for them to take charge and be responsible. But, of course, many of them were very irresponsible and uh, they tended to be chosen to a considerable extent on their skills at rugby or rowing or both. And so they were physically big. And to kind of um, accelerate their strength, if that's the right metaphor, um, when they used a sand shoe to belt you on the bum and you'd have to bend over and touch your toes and they would get on the windowsill at the far end of the room and launch themselves so that they'd hit you with full force. And um, it really hurts. And my record was 12 times on the bum, but there would have been people who got more. Eventually they introduced a rule that they could only do it six times, but they ignored the rule and no one seemed to notice that they were ignoring it. So... uh, Yeah, it was pretty much the law of the jungle a lot of the time. How did you cope with that, John? Well, yeah, I'd kind of uh, conform in some ways, but I was very subversive at the same time. So I was kind of maintaining an exterior that was often reasonably compliant, but not always. And, uh, yeah, I don't think I coped very well at all, actually. I had more detentions than any other student in the history of the school, just about. <laughs> and uh, lots of these really tough punishments called pack drills on Friday afternoons. So if you were caught doing something like talking in class, uh, the prefect would supervise the classes till the teacher arrived. So they'd walk along the corridors, peering in at the windows and doors. And if you were caught whispering, then you might get a pack drill. And that would be 30 minutes of really savage uh, physical tortures really so having to do like 20 push-ups and then run 100 meters at full speed and then run 100 meters back and do 20 star jumps and then run uh, around a tree and back again and then do 50 chin-ups or whatever 50 chin-ups would be a tough gig for anyone but um yeah it was designed to really push you beyond your limits and it did. The only time in my life I got asthma was during a pack drill. And luckily I had the one sympathetic prefect in the school that year running the pack drill and he took pity on me and got me to stop and uh, go and sit down. Why did your parents decide to send you to a military school? Well, I don't know that it was the militarism that attracted them, but they were just very committed to private schools and they yeah. tried uh, at least two others when we arrived in Sydney and they were booked out. And so... This one took me and I think they were just pleased to find one that was willing to tolerate me and um, they were conservative people themselves and I think the the mantra of the school was that discipline is good, you know, we're pretty big on discipline and that's a word that can be used in all kinds of contexts and can be used according to the discretion of the person using it. So it wasn't really about inculcating self-discipline or developing self-discipline, it was about imposing discipline from the top on the uh, people at the bottom who are meant to act compliantly and obediently and passively. Reading became an escape for you. Yeah, it had been since as far back as I can remember, since Blinky Bill and Snuggle Pot and Cuddle Pie and all those classics. And yeah, I was literally in the world of that book for all the hours that it took to read the book. And um I was completely really disassociated from the real world while I was doing that. So it was a huge escape for me. And I don't know how I would have prospered without books. I think I would have uh, gone under. Perhaps I was getting pretty emotionally unwell at times. Isn't it amazing that as, I mean, we can do it obviously as adults as well, but I find that I think children do it even better you can take a book and just get so mesmerised by it and live and breathe the characters. I remember with the Faraway Tree series as a child, just being obsessed with it, obsessed with the characters. Mm. I had the big hard copies and I would look at the pictures day after day after day and I would think about the characters a lot even after I finished reading the books and I just think... Books are such a wonderful thing for 
everyone and especially children and to hear your story and know that you suffered in such a horrible way yet you could turn to books and they would be an escapism is just, it's really touching. Yeah, one of the nicest things I ever heard about the Tomorrow series was when a girl wrote to me and said she'd been on a long car trip with her parents and they were driving through central Australia during summer and there'd been a drought for a long time. And in the book, that as she read it in the back seat of the car, Ellie, the protagonist of the book, described how rain started falling and what a relief that was after a long dry spell. And reading the book, the girl thought, oh, great, rain's falling, the drought's broken, and looked out the window expecting to see the rain falling and then realised, oh, okay, yeah, it's a book, that's not real. And when you try to write realistic fiction, as I try to do, that's the ultimate compliment when someone is so engrossed in the book that they actually have lost the um, the wall that normally surrounds us when we're in these fantasy worlds. Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, the reason that I wanted to interview today is because when your name came up, I was like, John Marsden, those books changed my life when I was young. And I mean, now I mostly just read self-improvement books, but... <laughs> When I was young, those are the books that I loved and um, people like you are wonderful humans to be able to give that to so so many people and be able to, to change so many people's lives. Mm, thank you. I, I really got taught by the authors of those books in many ways. Yeah. So creating suspense and tension, I learned that from people like Hammond Innes and Alistair MacLean, who I read as, teenager, as a teenager. And they wrote thrillers, which were very popular in their time. They were great storytellers. And when you mentioned Magic Faraway Tree, I mean, Enid Blyton, she had a secret that no one has yet been able to fathom. She had some magic that made her able to write books, which still to this day kids buy and read, not to the extent that they did back in the a few decades ago, but they were just incredibly powerful and important and popular and have remained so for some time, for forever. And um, no one's yet been able to replicate what she's done. No one's really able to analyse just what it was that she could do that enabled her to write books as different as Magic Faraway Tree, Noddy, The Famous Five. They were so different, but they all worked and uh, she didn't have many failures. She holds the world's record for the most books published in one year. That's 53 books in one year. She published 53 books in one year. I spoke to Le- Leanne Moriarty and she said she'd take a year to write a book. Yeah, and some people take a lifetime to write a book. But, um, I mean, a lot of hers were short. Enid Blyton's books were often quite brief, but uh, like the naughty books. Yes. Maybe she knocked them off in an afternoon, I don't know. <laughs> she did pretty well. She and her husband took up golf when they were older and uh, they eventually bought the 18-hole golf course down the road so that they could play golf on their private course. It was just more pleasant for them that way. And I thought, yeah, well, you know you've really made it when you can buy your own golf course. (laughs) But isn't it a wonderful thing as well, being a mother, when I go to find books and my kids are just slightly probably a bit young for your books yet, but don't worry, they'll be getting them when, when they're a little bit older. But I look at the authors that I love, like the Enid Blyton's, and any other books that I remember at school being read to me. And those are the books that I will then buy for my children because you just feel that you have this link to them. And I suppose it's like hearing a nice song on on the radio that reminds you of a certain time or a relationship. Children's books take you back and to that time. And it's just, you know, to be able to then pass that on to your own children, I think is such a beautiful thing. Yeah, and I was lucky in a way because living in Devonport, Tasmania, the library was limited as it would have been in those days. So the number of children's books that it held were relatively small, was relatively small. And so I ended up reading stuff that perhaps wouldn't normally have come into the world of a 10-year-old boy. Yes. And so I read girls' books because my sister had (laughs) her books from the library, so I read those as well as the boys' books. And I read the classics, so I read the Billabong books and Seven Little Australians and uh, Little Women, Little Men and uh, Good Wives. So, yeah, I just read everything and that was very helpful and useful, but I also, I just loved them. I didn't read them because I wanted to be an author myself one day. I just loved the books. My favourite writer really was Nan Chauncey, who's 
almost been forgotten, which is really wrong because she was, she still is a, I mean, she's dead now. She doesn't write anymore, but um, she was a terrific writer and her books still work for me. And she lived in Tasmania and uh, won a lot of awards and was very, very successful and wrote just superb books about Australian life. And uh, it was kind of inspiring to know that there was a famous author down the road in yeah. Tasmania. I never met her, but it made me feel that authors were real people, I think, to know that this woman actually existed and lived just north of Hobart. That's <laughs> wonderful. When you ended up leaving school, you went on to uni and that was very challenging for you. How come? Well, I wasn't emotionally ready for it, I suppose. Looking back, I just was, I was a lost soul by the time I left school. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I, I matriculated into arts law at uh, Sydney Uni and I had this idea that lawyers were sort of heroic figures because I'd been watching them on TV <laughs> in uh, Hollywood dramas and they all looked very impressive. And um, I just thought that would be a noble sort of profession, but I didn't cope with university at all. I, I found it very difficult to meet people or mix with people. And uh, I'd left home fairly dramatically, I must admit, in the January after I finished year 12. So I had no money except what I could earn myself. So I was so busy working to earn money to keep myself alive that I didn't put much time into attending lectures or studying which didn't help. So I dropped out um, halfway through that first year. You ran away from home, didn't you? Well, you can put it in those terms. I wouldn't say ran. I caught a taxi. <laughs> but it was, um, <laughs> yeah, it was about five o'clock in the morning. I'd arranged for a friend to come and pick me up at about four in the morning. I'd, I'd moved all my stuff onto the front lawn of the house and I'd left a note on the pillow, which is what you meant to do. What did the note say? I can't remember, but it was pretty, would have been pretty brusque. It would have been like, don't bother trying to find me. I yeah. don't want any further contact with you. And um, so, yeah, I mean, normally in books, it would be 12-year-olds who'd run away from home. But I was 18, which was a bit um, old for it. But there was really no other way that I could think of to escape. So I'd arranged for this friend to come and pick me up at about 4am, but he didn't turn up. And I had a backup plan, which was bloody lucky, and that was the taxi driver. And so I rang the taxi company and spoke to them, and this driver had heard me talking to a friend of mine when I was in the in the, his cab about a week earlier, and he'd worked out what I was going to do, and he said, well, if you need a taxi, here's my card. And he said, I'll do the job for, I think it's 20 bucks. And I had, I was astonished that this stranger would make this offer, but I kept the card and I rang the taxi company and he came out to Parramatta where I lived from the city so fast that his radiator was boiling when he got to mm. our house. And I admire him to this day. This I don't know who he was. I, I knew his name, but I've forgotten it decades ago. But we loaded the taxi with my stuff, mostly books, needless to say, and took off and, um, I, yeah, it squatted. I, I'd found an empty room in a building in King's Cross and I'd noticed the window was open so I went in through the window and let myself in and uh, squatted in there until I had enough money to pay the rent and then I went down to the real estate agent and pretended I'd, you know, wanted to rent this flat, this room, this bed sitter it was, that I knew was vacant and they didn't uh, quibble about that so I became the legitimate occupant of the, the bed sitter. In Kellett Street, King's Cross. I could take you to the building today. It's still there. Wow. Still grotty. <laughs> and what was the need to leave your parents? Well, they were very controlling people, very conservative and very um, just, I think, to be honest, I don't think they liked children and many adults don't, but there's meant to be something like parental love, a, parent-child bond, which can somehow um, override that dislike of children. But they didn't seem to really have that. They just seemed to, they did all the right things by us in terms of our external mm. being. So they fed us and clothed us and housed us. But my father did lose his temper and uh, hit us quite often. With He used a reinforced rubber hose on my brother and I, my brother and me not on my sisters, but on the boys. And um, he would lose his temper and just become uncontrollable and just hit us over and over. 
And that didn't happen often, but it happened enough for me to become really frightened of him. And uh, I felt the only way to get out was to just disappear. Because if I'd tried to do it legitimately, they would have blocked it because they were very good at blocking what their children wanted to do. And they demonstrated that very um, frequently during our lives. Did they show you love when you were growing up? (laughs) Not in the normal sense of the word, no. They... I don't think they understood love in that hallmark greeting card way or even yeah. in a more authentic way. <laughs> they, um, yeah, they complied with all the expectations in terms of the physical, like I said, um, meeting our needs, but not our emotional needs. I don't remember being touched by my mother except once and I don't remember being touched by my father. Um, so it was a very... Uh, like living in a cult, really. They didn't have visitors or a circle of friends much. They had a few friends who they'd go and visit, but we didn't have people come into our house. And so we lived in a very circumscribed and uh, controlling cocoon, which was very strict and very judgmental. Everything we did was analysed and found to be lacking and you nearly took your life not far after yeah. that. Yeah, I got to about, I don't know how old I was, probably 19 and a half, something like that. And um, I got desperate enough to think that that was the only path to take. But uh, maybe because of reading books, I don't think it was so much books as newspapers and magazines. I did know there was this thing called psychiatry, which I'd been led to believe was full of weirdos and quacks. And um, But I did think logically enough that it would be silly to kill myself without at least checking out this psychiatry thing because if it didn't work, well, I hadn't lost anything and if it did work, well, I'd gain something. So I read about a doctor in a newspaper article, just a casual mention of this psychiatrist, but it gave me a name. So I rang him and or his secretary and made an appointment and went down to see him and... Um, it was a long trip. It was uh, on the other side of Sydney, but it was the only psychiatrist whose name I, I knew. And he, in we had this one appointment, and by the end of the appointment, he said, "Well, I'm putting you in hospital." And I was like, "What?" The? I was completely um, shell shocked and tried to refuse, but it was made clear that I didn't have that option. So I was in hospital for about six weeks. Well, isn't it? Isn't it unbelievable that that saved your life and then you have gone on to, I can only imagine how many lives that you have saved through your books. So thank God that you took that path. Yeah, I don't know, but it was, I I mean, I've read One Floor Over the Cookies Nest, (laughs) which doesn't paint psychiatry in a good light. I can only say that for me it was a lifesaver. It was great. The team at the hospital were terrific. They were really professional and uh, thoughtful and and they were kind, but in a firm way. They weren't uh, soft or easy kind of targets. I couldn't manipulate them. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was, it was the turning point in my life. I'm not saying that it's been all sweetness and light ever since, but it was the turning point and from there I've found that life has generally been in a forward direction, but not always. I'll take three steps forward and two back or three back or even four back, but then the overall momentum has been more positive than negative, and I wouldn't say that about my first 18 or 19 years. And then when did you go on to become an author? Well, I was teaching, teaching English, and I was um, probably in about my eighth year of teaching, and I was teaching year nines, and they were asking me, you know, if you've got any books we can read, what would you recommend? So I dived into the school library and searched the shelves and came away empty-handed. I was like, oh. knowing the students, I didn't think there was much in there that would really work for them, except there were a few American authors who were writing novels specifically aimed at teenagers, which I'd never heard of before. So Paul Zindel and Judy Bloom were the two names that I stumbled across, and I read one of one book by each of them, and I thought, ah, oh, these guys are onto something. 
So I recommended those books. And then I started thinking, well, how come there's so few books written for teenagers? Maybe I could try writing one because it couldn't be that difficult. So um, when the next school holidays rolled around, I had a go at writing one. And I'd all, I was encouraged too because the Women's Weekly came to do a story about the school. And for some reason, the kids at the school showed the photographer an article I'd written in the school magazine the year before. And it was a funny article. I was being humorous about the school. And I'd never met the photographer, but the kids came and told me the next day how the photographer had read the article and said, this guy's in the wrong job. He should be writing. And I was that was like a big motivator for me, a big incentive. It just gave me this big um, boost in confidence, I suppose. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I should have a go at this. And so I did have a, a serious go at it in the next, as I say, in the next school holidays. Mm-hmm. And do you think a lot of your childhood and adolescence and all of the problems that you had in that then inspired you to go on and want to change the lives of, of so many other adolescent kids? Not consciously at all, but unconsciously, yeah, with a couple of books. With that first book, that was one where, and this will sound weird, but it's true enough, I was on my own because my partner had suddenly decided she wanted to go to London to see a production of Cats. (laughs) And she was pretty much a maverick who uh, hopped on a plane and off she went. And I had three weeks in her house, actually, on my own. And I thought, okay, well, I'll better fill the time. Somehow I'll write a book. So I sat down and wrote in this kind of state, which I can only describe as sort of dreamlike, semi-conscious, and I just raced through this book, just writing and writing and writing and barely aware of what I was writing in a strange sort of way. And it wasn't until I'd finished the book that I read it back, which was a change to the way I'd attempted writing in the past. So I wrote the whole thing without reading back any of it, really, except each day I'd read back the last few paragraphs I'd written the night before. That was all. And so when I sat down and read it, it was like reading a book that someone else had written. And I was turning the pages thinking, God, what happens next? <laughs> I mean, that's a slight exaggeration, but there were a couple of times where I thought, I can't remember what I, what I wrote next. And um, years later, I realised that I was actually telling a lot of my own story without even noticing that I was doing it, but I was doing it in a sort of metaphorical way. I mean, I don't know if you're into this stuff, but I'll just put it out there anyway, because this is what we talk a lot about on the podcast. But would you say that that was almost being channeled through you, that text? Well, I'm fascinated by the unconscious mind, and I think my conscious mind was switched off from most of the time that I was writing. Like I'd stop and have a meal or I'd stop to go to the loo, but that was about it. And uh, I slept too. And um, so, yeah, it was like I said, a dreamlike state and uh, the unconscious mind was doing the writing. So, um, yeah, it's only happened a couple of times, but it was it was good in many ways. But it, I was also very anxious before the book was published and I didn't understand why. And I actually went to the local doctor, which I don't normally do, and said, look, I'm really stressed. And he said, has anything happened in your life that would cause that? And I'm like, no. And I said, I've got a book coming out, so I shouldn't be feeling stressed. I should be feeling really proud. And uh, he wasn't able to explain why I was feeling so stressed. But years later, I realized it was because that book was going to cause some upset in my family, and it did. And um, I had some unconscious awareness that it was going to be difficult for some people to read, namely my parents. (laughs) What was that book? Oh, so much to tell you, it's called. Oh, of course. I've read that book. I've read that book, yes. Yeah, Yeah, I did it in a female voice, but I think looking back, it was kind of like my female dimension, for want of a better word. It was doing the writing. And then you have now gone on to basically put two amazing schools together. Tell us why you wanted to go and have your own schools. (laughs) Well... Initially, it was because I was so, I felt that even while I was at school, I knew it was wrong. I knew that what they were doing was wrong. And I'd sit there in year nine, year 10, thinking, that is ridiculous. Why on earth would they think that that's a good idea? And so I'd sit there thinking they should do this and change that and fix that and replace that. And then they'd have a much better environment here. But I didn't have the the 
conduits to go and uh, the contacts or whatever to go and say to the headmaster, look, this is what you should be doing. And that wouldn't have been well received. But that was very strong in my mind that that school could have been made so much better quite easily. And I think also when I became a teacher, I'd done a great teaching course, which had encouraged us to be subversive and to go out and change the system, which I was very pleased to, to take on. And um, then as an author, I'd been to so many schools and seen so many things that worked and so many things that didn't. And I started thinking if I took all the things that worked and put them in one school and didn't take any of the things that don't work, then that could be pretty interesting. So, yeah, I was just fascinated by education and uh, what could be done and how it could be changed. So it really came from that. And it's the same with any other institutions. I look at prisons and um, the the safety net for children who or adolescents who are having emotional difficulties or mental health difficulties. I look at hospitals and I look at the police force and the courts and I think they could fix these things so much, so easily and make them so much more effective and so much better. But um, there's a tremendous reluctance or inability to do that in Western countries, especially Australia perhaps. It's amazing that you've thought that and you've actually done something about it because a lot of people might think it, but then they don't do anything. But the fact that you have now put together these two amazing schools to be able to teach in a way that you feel will give children the best chance at life. You have a school, Alice Miller, and I read this the other day and I thought it was so beautiful that the school's named after a Polish-Swiss psychotherapist and author who once said, I can imagine that someday we will regard our children not as creatures to manipulate or to change, but rather as messengers from a world we once deeply knew. That's so mm. beautiful. Yeah, she's an amazing writer. And I think one of the things, one of the biggest obstacles to good parenting is the belief that children are your property. And so you own them, yes. which means you can control them, you can mould them into whatever shape you want them to be. And that leads to pretty disastrous outcomes for so many young people. And it's very sad as a teacher and a school principal to see that happening and often not to be able to do much about it. We do intervene as best we can. And some parents are very open to hearing a different suggestion or a point of view, but others are very, very closed to hearing anything that might indicate that they need to change some of their practices. And so... Uh, yeah, I've taught kids who make very little progress and I can see why they're making very little progress and I've taught kids who've made enormous progress and I can see why that is and it does depend very much on the the ability of the parents to consider and reflect and contemplate and think and come to uh, perhaps new understandings. You have your new book called Take Risks, Raising Kids Who Love the Adventure of Life. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because it does cover bits that we have spoken about. Yeah, well, it's um, kids who should uh, love the adventure of life but aren't given the opportunity is what it's really about. And we are living in a world now in Australia where the lives of children are so circumscribed that... They, their world consists in its tangible physical form of their home, their school, the shopping mall, and maybe a couple of other houses that they're allowed to go to where friends live or relatives live. And that's about it. They might get to go to that incredibly sterile playground down the street, which are invariably ugly and um, maybe functional, but there's nothing inviting the imagination. There's nothing inviting risk-taking. There's nothing inviting any sense of daring or adventure or or excitement. Um, so, yeah, they're living in very sterile worlds, very barren worlds. And the computer and the TV is about their only link to anything beyond the sterile world that they're living in. So, yeah, I am arguing for people to become less obsessed by the fear of physical injury to their children and becoming more aware that emotional injuries to their children and spiritual injuries and social injuries can be as bad or worse than physical injuries 
And so in protecting children from physical injuries, we're making it more likely that they'll be hurt emotionally and and uh, hurt for life perhaps and have considerable problems as adults trying to negotiate difficult situations because they won't have they will have been protected from yeah. those difficulties when they're very young. John, you've said I've lost fears of people's opinions. <laughs> which is a good way to be. I mean, if you can teach us all how to do that, we'd be winning in life. But obviously you have the Tomorrow series, which you, you're probably most well-known for, and it's for anyone that hasn't read it, they need to give to their children. It's just unbelievable. But you came under criticism for that. How does it feel when it's so many years later and people are then picking apart things that were written so long ago? How do you deal with that? Well, I kind of laugh, really, and then just forget about it. It's, um, I don't think the books have inured me from criticism uh, or from feeling the pain of criticism. And for some years it did hurt. Mm. But I think it's being a school principal because you get abused and insulted and um, <laughs> treated contemptuously so often that after a while it just becomes amusing when people um, go into a rant about whatever their particular ideology happens to be. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of reached a point now where I am pretty immune to it. And uh, I, I'm polite when people make those comments to me, usually, but uh, it doesn't bother me and it doesn't change my my thinking necessarily. Although I do, I reflect when people say things and I think about it and I think, is it valid or not? Or is it somewhere between valid and invalid? And um yeah, it's hard to come to definitive, definitive answers on many issues, and so I don't try to. So, for example, with terminations of pregnancies, I've always felt a personal kind of horror that it's such uh, an action. But then I started to think, well, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people around the world have thought about it and come to a different understanding and a different point of view and I should respect that because my point of view doesn't have any more validity than theirs and it may have less in this case and so in the end I came to the a different understanding and I thought yeah it is quite legitimate for people to take that action where the circumstances indicate that that is the best action for them and it's not for me to say that it's right or wrong because it's not some not a situation I'll ever be in in the f- in the first person, so to speak. So, yeah, I do. I will change my opinions and my thoughts and my feelings depending on what people say to me or what I read. But um, I won't just immediately change everything I think or believe just because someone else has a different point of view. There was a great... I spent a lot of time with Keith Johnson, who's a wonderful um, writer and director. I went to Canada to do a course with him and so on. And he's a kind of an actor who became a director. And he was working with a group of actors, and I was a bit of a ring-in being the only non-actor there. (laughs) And he was telling them that sometimes a performance will go badly if it's in a theatre, and at 11 o'clock at night the audience will have gone home and the actors will be, well, they'll have a meeting, the director will call a meeting, and they'll be sitting in a circle on the stage and everyone will be there and people will be tired and some of them will be furious and some will be feel betrayed and, and, uh, and hurt and insulted and slighted and so on. And he said, you've got to be look after yourself during those sessions because they can get very fraught and very ugly. But he said, you must also listen carefully because there might be something worthwhile that you can take away from that meeting, something that will be something you can learn. In other words, if someone says to you, you're hogging the stage too much, you're not letting anyone else kind of uh, uh, say their lines without um, coming in too quickly, then that may be useful information for you. So they might say it angrily Mm. and insultingly, but it still might be important information for you to acquire. And I've really tried to follow that kind of advice ever since. So when someone is yelling at me and abusing me, I still listen to what they're saying and I still think about it afterwards and think, is that is there useful information in there? Is there something important for me to learn from that? And sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't. But it doesn't affect me emotionally either way to any great extent. Thank you for sharing that. Do you still keep all the letters that, that people write to you? Yeah, I do. I've got a lot of filing cabinets here which are out of sight of the camera, but, um, yeah, they're pretty pretty full. 
<laughs> do you, I know that you've obviously got, got thousands upon thousands. Is there a particular one that for some reason just stands out? Oh, God, what a question. Um, oh, there's heaps. One that immediately comes to mind is um, when I'd said something in a newspaper article, I think, in an interview about how this idea that by sending kids who are in trouble in the city off to the country to be, live on a farm or something or go to a rural school for a few weeks or a few months and that milking cows and kind of watching the sunrise and set will fix them up. I said, that's just ridiculous kind of uh, wishful thinking and doesn't have much relation to real life. And a young woman wrote to me from Perth and she described how she had attempted suicide by taking an overdose and she'd woken up in a hospital bed and was very angry to find that she was still alive. And she stayed in the hospital for some time and uh, continued to be very angry and very depressed and very unhappy. And uh, one day a nurse or a nurse's aide was changing her bed or helping her change the sheets on the bed. And as they changed the sheets, they were talking and the nurse said to her, I don't know why you would want to kill yourself. You've got so much to live for. You're such a wonderful person and we really enjoy your company. And that one statement, she said, turned her around mm -hmm. and she it changed her. And she wrote me this letter saying, I'm, I'm in, I really feel like I want to live and I've, I'm going much better now. I'm out of hospital and I'm, I'm really starting to make some progress and so on. And it was just, yeah, such a salutary lesson to me to realise that um, my glib statement did not apply to all people at all times and that uh, there was a very tangible example of someone who a chance comment, almost almost a chance comment, I mean, that nurse knew what she was yeah. doing, I think, but all credit to the nurse too for having such wisdom and such um, a positive approach. Isn't it unbelievable how and I'm very careful about my words in life generally now, that anything you can say can make or break someone and how words can shape people's lives forever. And you being a teacher, you would know about this. Teachers can say things to their students that will absolutely change their lives and in a good sense instill hope and love within them and then they can also do the opposite. How important is that for the way that you run your schools? Yeah, it's hugely important. We don't have a system of punishments, but we do talk when people have done something that's damaging to people or property. And we talk maybe briefly or at length and maybe over a period of months in some situations. But often... They are just reality checks, which is what I'd call them, and students might call them something less flattering because I'll say to someone, don't do that again, ever. That was really a dreadful thing to do, so I never want to, um, you know, you never, you must never behave like this again. You, you've really hurt this person. Um, so it might be, that might be the end of the conversation, but it might be, as I say, a very extensive conversation, but I do tend towards trying to be realistic. So I don't deal in euphemisms. I don't deal in long, elaborate um, uh, waffle. <laughs> I don't um, make long speeches. I just say, look, this is what happened, ABC, and this is what should have happened, DEF, and you need to think about that next time you're in trouble or next time you uh, lose uh, lose your temper or, or get upset or get, get frightened or whatever. So I'm tend to be fairly um, straightforward. I think we're just too euphemistic as a society. So people use expressions even for death, like um, passed over or something. And I'm like, passed away? I'm like, they died. It's, um, I'd rather just tell it like it is. Yes, yes. And I think there can be a lot of encouragement there too. I mean, a lot of kids don't have people at home that might see the brilliance in them, yet then they go to school and there can be a teacher that people that I've talked to, I remember one guy, he was saying that he's he didn't have a dad and his family life wasn't great, but he had this teacher at school that called him brilliant. And he said, I don't even know what the word brilliant was. I had to go home and look it up. 
But in my mind, I just, I hung on to that. Like he said, you know, from age seven, when it was said to me, I just thought I am brilliant, I am brilliant. And that's what shaped him for the rest of his life. Yeah. And Mrs. Scott in grade four had that impact on me. And Mr. Baddeley in grade six, the two teachers who really changed my life because they both were supportive and encouraging and warm and friendly and kind. And uh, yeah, I, I, I really owe everything to them in many ways. But yeah, I had a student, an ex-student write to me about three weeks ago and I haven't taught him or seen him since about 1986, I guess. Oh, wow. And he sent me a book that he's written and I read the book and I wrote back and said, look, I don't use the word genius lightly, but I, re- I think you're a genius. And I thought that when you're in year nine, and I, I'm reinforced in that belief by reading the book. So I will say nice things to people, but I won't say nice things and flattering things just for the sake of it. I'll I'll say what I honestly think. And um, if I think they're underachieving, I'll tell them that too. But I I won't say that you're an idiot or something really horrible and insulting and degrading. I'll say, look, you don't seem motivated in this subject and we need to think about why it doesn't motivate you. And maybe if we can find a way to motivate you to do it, then um, that would be very worthwhile. John, what's the best advice that you've ever been given? Uh, I think the something I read years ago that um, depression was anger turned inwards. I thought, yeah, that's pretty right for me. I think I was very angry at the way I was um, raised at home and at school. And uh, I think my depression and suicidal thoughts kind of developed from that. I remember going to a seminar run by Monash University Psych Department a few years ago, and they were saying that when children with mental health problems are presented to them, if they work with the parents and not the child, and I've forgotten the figure, but it was something like 70 or 80% of the children, their symptoms disappear. So there is a tremendous relationship, tremendously strong relationship between parents' emotional difficulties and the emotional difficulties that their children have. But we, as a society, we're very scared to look at the parents' problems. We just want to believe that the child is the one with the problems. The child needs the treatment. The child needs the help. This child needs a lot of, you know, support and counselling and so on and so on. And, in fact, if the parents had that sort of um, support and counselling and so on, the child would probably be pretty, most children would be pretty, pretty right within a pretty short time. John, you'd be such an amazing father. How come you didn't have kids of your own? I don't know, really. It just didn't happen. I um, I was in a couple of great relationships and, uh, yeah, we talked about having children in one of those relationships. Um, yeah, there's no logical reason I can think of. It just didn't yeah. happen that way. And I have schools filled with children, so uh, I suppose you're pretty busy. Yeah, and um, still getting insulted all the time. I had a prep kid say to me about a week ago, what's it like being 95? (laughs) And I said, "Uh, I'm not 95. (laughs) And she said, but you told us you were. And I thought, God, did I? And I tried to cast my mind back and I finally said, well, if I did, it would have been a joke. And I said, how old do you think I am if I'm not 95? And she said, 94, 93, 92. I cut her off at that point. (laughs) Told her to go and learn some maths. But no, she can count backwards very accurately, which at five years of age is quite impressive. But um, <laughs> Well, you're sure still yeah. getting the insults that all our, us parents get. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. so, yeah. so it's like you have your own kids. John, what is your favourite prayer? The one that I've, has always meant more to me than I can logically understand is the Hail Mary. Yes. And I'm not, I was never raised Catholic. I was raised Protestant and uh, not a Christian or a believer in God at all now. But um, yeah, that prayer has always had a special emotional resonance for me. What is the lesson that has taken you the longest to learn? Oh, gosh. I think just to not... If someone, if I disagree strongly with someone, to just not get overheated and angry about it, but to try to understand what's going on there. And 
that understanding is a very powerful thing to develop because you do start to get more empathy and more um, insight and more compassion. So, yeah, when I look at someone who love to take someone from public life, you know, a, a Donald Trump or a Pauline Hanson, I can get some sense of why they are the way they are and that then makes me less um, angry at them. And the same thing happens just in my personal life and in the school life that um, once I start to understand why a child or an adult is acting destructively and damagingly, then I kind of don't get angry at them myself. I can kind of try to suggest some strategies that might work for them and uh, be a bit more positive, I suppose, in the way I interact with them. John, what's your greatest hope for society today? Oh, God, just to do something immediate and urgent and enormous in terms of environmental um, slowing down and even ending the environmental destruction of the planet, which has now reached catastrophic levels. And, uh, yeah, I think we're in big trouble unless we do something very, very quickly. What is a life of greatness to you? Just managing relationships in a empathetic and understanding way. So it's not doing media appearances or being on TV or um, staying at five-star hotels in the luxury suite on the top floor because I've had all those experiences. When I'm doing book tours, I, I get upgraded to the penthouse of the hotel and I'm in this two or three-bedroom apartment with two or three bathrooms <laughs> and usually I get there at 10 o'clock at night and I have to leave again at 6am to do a TV gig or something. So I think, well, this is bloody ridiculous to be in this apartment where all I want to do is fall on the bed and go to sleep. And um, it's nothing about those externals. It's about um, just getting those relationships working as well as you can by trying to understand what's happening around you. We talk about gaining knowledge in schools and we talk about, when we talk about education, we're always thinking in terms of learning stuff. But there's another path, which is the intellectual journey towards understanding and wisdom and insight. And that's a path which is largely ignored in Australian schools. So, uh, yeah, to give that greater primacy and greater importance and greater priority, that would be very worthwhile, not just in schools, but in the adult world as well. Thank you for your work in your books as being an author and in obviously your schools as well bringing so much happiness and change into so many people's lives. Thank you for that. Well, thank you, Sarah. It's very gracious of you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.